This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read and recorded by Betsy Bush. Marquette, Michigan, April 2006. Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. Chapter 6 The Effect Which an Early Association of Ideas Has Upon the Character. Educated in the enervating style recommended by the writers on whom I have been animadverting, and not having a chance from their subordinate state in society to recover their lost ground, is it surprising that women everywhere appear a defect in nature? Is it surprising, when we consider what a determinate effect an early association of ideas has on the character, that they neglect their understandings, and turn all their attention to their persons? The great advantages which naturally result from storing the mind with knowledge are obvious from the following considerations. The association of our ideas is either habitual or instantaneous, and the latter mode seems rather to depend on the original temperature of the mind than on the will. When the ideas and matters of fact are once taken in, they lie by their use till some fortuitous circumstance makes the information dart into the mind with illustrative force. That has been received at very different periods of our lives. Like the lightning's flash are many recollections, one idea assimilating and explaining another, with astonishing rapidity. I do not now allude to that quick perception of truth, which is so intuitive that it baffles research, and makes us at a loss to determine whether it is reminiscence or ratiocination, lost sight of in its celerity, that opens the dark cloud. Over those instantaneous associations we have little power. For when the mind is once enlarged by excursive flights, or profound reflection, the raw materials will in some degree arrange themselves. The understanding, it is true, may keep us from going out of drawing when we group our thoughts, or transcribe from the imagination the warm sketches of fancy. But the animal spirits, the individual character, give the coloring. Over this subtle electric fluid, footnote, I have sometimes been inclined to laugh at materialists, asked whether, as the most powerful effects in nature are apparently produced by fluids, the magnetic, etc., the passions might not be fine, volatile fluids that embraced humanity, keeping the more refractory elementary parts together, or whether they were simply a liquid fire that pervaded the more sluggish materials, giving them life and heat. End footnote. Over this subtle electric fluid, how little power do we possess, and over it how little power can reason obtain? These fine, intractable spirits appear to be the essence of genius, and beaming in its eagle eye, produce in the most eminent degree the happy energy of associating thoughts that surprise, delight, and instruct. These are the glowing minds that concentrate pictures for their fellow creatures, forcing them to view with interest the objects reflected from the impassioned imagination which they passed over in nature. I must be allowed to explain myself. 
the generality of people cannot see or feel poetically. They want fancy, and therefore fly from solitude in search of sensible objects. But when an author lends them his eyes, they can see as he saw, and be amused by images they could not select, though lying before them. Education thus only supplies the man of genius with knowledge to give variety and contrast to his associations. But there is an habitual association of ideas that grows with our growth, which has a great effect on the moral character of mankind, and by which a turn is given to the mind that commonly remains throughout life. So ductile is the understanding, and yet so stubborn, that the associations which depend on adventitious circumstances during the period that the body takes to arrive at maturity can seldom be disentangled by reason. One idea calls up another, its old associate and memory, faithful to the first impressions, particularly when the intellectual powers are not employed to cool our sensations, retraces them with mechanical exactness. This habitual slavery to first impressions has a more baneful effect on the female than the male character, because business and other dry employments of the understanding tend to deaden the feelings and break associations that do violence to reason. But females, who are made women of when they are mere children, and brought back to childhood when they ought to leave the go-cart forever, have not sufficient strength of mind to efface the superinductions of art that have smothered nature. Everything that they see or hear serves to fix impressions, call forth emotions, and associate ideas, that give a sexual character to the mind. False notions of beauty and delicacy stop the growth of their limbs and produce a sickly soreness, rather than delicacy of organs and thus weakened by being employed in unfolding instead of examining the first associations, forcing on them by every surrounding object, how can they attain the vigor necessary to enable them to throw off their factuous character? Where find a strength to recur to reason and rise superior to a system of oppression that blasts the fair promises of spring? This cruel association of ideas, which everything conspires to twist into all their habits of thinking, or, to speak with more precision, of feeling, receives new force when they begin to act a little for themselves. For they then perceive that it is only through their address to excite emotions in men that pleasure and power are to be obtained. Besides, all the books professedly written for their instruction, which make the first impression on their minds, all inculcate the same opinions. Educated in worse than Egyptian bondage, it is unreasonable as well as cruel to upbraid them with faults that can scarcely be avoided, unless a degree of native vigor be supposed, that falls to the lot of very few amongst mankind. For instance, the severest sarcasms have been leveled against the sex, and they have been ridiculed for repeating a set of phrases learnt by rote, when nothing could be more natural, considering the education they receive, and that their highest praise is to obey, unargued, the will of man. And they are not allowed to have reason sufficient to govern their own conduct. Why, all they learn must be learned by rote. 
and when all their ingenuity is called forth to adjust their dress, a passion for a scarlet coat is so natural that it never surprised me, and, allowing Pope's summary of their character to be just, that every woman is at heart a rake, why should they be bitterly censured for seeking a congenial mind, and preferring a rake to a man of sense? Rakes know how to work on their sensibility, whilst the modest merit of reasonable men has, of course, less effect on their feelings, and they cannot reach the heart by the way of the understanding, because they have few sentiments in common. It seems a little absurd to expect women to be more reasonable than men in their likings, and still to deny them the uncontrolled use of reason. When do men fall in love with sense? When do they, with their superior powers and advantages, turn from the person to the mind? And how can they then expect women, who are only taught to observe behavior, and acquire manners rather than morals, to despise what they have been all their lives laboring to attain? Where are they suddenly to find judgment enough to weigh patiently the sense of an awkward virtuous man, when his manners, of which they are made critical judges, are rebuffing, and his conversation cold and dull, because it does not consist of pretty repartees, or well-turned compliments. In order to admire or esteem anything for a continuance, we must at least have our curiosity excited by knowing, in some degree, what we admire. For we are unable to estimate the value of qualities and virtues above our comprehension. Such a respect, when it is felt, may be very sublime, and the confused consciousness of humility may render the dependent creature an interesting object, in some points of view. But human love must have grosser ingredients, and the person, very naturally, will come in for its share, and an ample share it mostly has. Love is, in a great degree, an arbitrary passion, and will reign, like some other stalking mischiefs, by its own authority, without deigning to reason. And it may also be easily distinguished from esteem, the foundation of friendship, because it is often excited by evanescent beauties and graces, though to give an energy to the sentiment, something more solid must deepen their impression, and set the imagination to work, to make the most fair the first good. Common passions are excited by common qualities. Men look for beauty and the simper of good-humored docility. Women are captivated by easy manners. A gentleman-like man seldom fails to please them, and their thirsty ears eagerly drink the insinuating nothings of politeness, whilst they turn from the unintelligible sounds of the charmer. Reason, charm he never so wisely. With respect to the superficial accomplishments, the rake certainly has the advantage, and of these females can form an opinion, for it is their own ground. Rendered gay and giddy by the whole tenor of their lives, the very aspect of wisdom, or the severe graces of virtue, must have a lugubrious appearance to them, and produce a kind of restraint from which they, and love, supportive child, naturally revolt. Without taste, excepting of the lighter kind, for taste is the offspring of judgment, how can they discover that true beauty and grace must arise from the play of the mind? 
and how can they be expected to relish in a lover what they do not, or very imperfectly, possess themselves? The sympathy that unites hearts, and invites to confidence, in them is so very faint that it cannot take fire, and thus mount to passion. No, I repeat it, the love cherished by such minds must have grosser fuel. The inference is obvious. Till women are led to exercise their understandings, they should not be satirized for their attachment to rakes, nor even for being rakes at heart, when it appears to be the inevitable consequence of their education. They who live to please must find their enjoyments, their happiness, in pleasure. It is a trite yet true remark, that we never do anything well, unless we love it for its own sake. Supposing, however, for a moment, that women were, in some future revolution of time, to become what I sincerely wish them to be, even love would acquire more serious dignity, and be purified in its own fires, and virtue giving true delicacy to their affections, they would turn with disgust from a rake. Reasoning, then, as well as feeling, the only province of woman, at present, they might easily guard against exterior graces, and quickly learn to despise the sensibility that had been excited and hackneyed in the ways of women, whose trade was vice, and allurements wanton airs. They would recollect that the flame, one must use appropriate expressions, which they wished to light up, had been exhausted by lust, and that the sated appetite, losing all relish for pure and simple pleasures, could only be roused by licentious arts of variety. What satisfaction could a woman of delicacy promise herself, in a union with such a man, when the very artlessness of her affection might appear insipid? Thus does Dryden describe the situation. Where love is duty on the female side, on theirs mere sensual gust, and sought with surly pride. But one grand truth women have yet to learn, though much it imports them to act accordingly, in the choice of a husband they should not be led astray by the qualities of a lover, for a lover, the husband, even supposing him to be wise and virtuous, cannot long remain. Were women more rationally educated, could they take a more comprehensive view of things, they would be contented to love but once in their lives, and after marriage calmly let passion subside into friendship into that tender intimacy which is the best refuge from care, yet is built on such pure, still affections, that idle jealousies would not be allowed to disturb the discharge of the sober duties of life, nor to engross the thoughts that ought to be otherwise employed. This is a state in which many men live, but few, very few women. And the difference may easily be accounted for without recurring to a sexual character. Men, for whom we are told women are made, have too much occupied the thoughts of women, and this association has so entangled love with all their motives of action, and to harp a little on an old string, having been solely employed either to prepare themselves to excite love, or actually putting their lessons in practice, they cannot live without love. But when a sense of duty or fear of shame obliges them to restrain this pampered desire of pleasing beyond certain lengths, too far for delicacy, it is true, though far from criminality, they obstinately determine to love. 
I speak of their passion, their husbands to the end of the chapter, and then acting the part which they foolishly extracted from their lovers, they become abject wooers and fond slaves. Men of wit and fancy are often rakes, and fancy is the food of love. Such men will inspire passion. Half the sex, in its present infantine state, would pine for a loveless, a man so witty, so graceful, and so valiant, and can they deserve blame for acting according to principles so constantly inculcated? They want a lover and protector, and behold him kneeling before them, bravery prostrate to beauty. The virtues of a husband are thus thrown by love into the background, and gay hopes, or lively emotions, banish reflection till the day of reckoning comes and come it surely will, to turn the sprightly lover into a surly, suspicious tyrant, who contemptuously insults the very weakness he fostered. Or, supposing the rake reformed, he cannot quickly get rid of old habits. When a man of abilities is first carried away by his passions, it is necessary that sentiment and taste varnish the enormities of vice, and give a zest to brutal indulgences. But when the gloss of novelty is worn off, and pleasure palls upon the sense, lasciviousness becomes barefaced, and enjoyment only the desperate effort of weakness flying from reflection as from a legion of devils. O virtue, thou art not an empty name. All that life can give, thou givest. If much comfort cannot be expected from the friendship of a reformed rake of superior abilities, what is the consequence when he lacketh sense as well as principles? Verily misery in its most hideous shape. When the habits of weak people are consolidated by time, a reformation is barely possible, and actually makes the beings miserable who have not sufficient mind to be amused by innocent pleasure. Like the tradesman who retires from the hurry of business, nature presents to him only a universal blank, and the restless thoughts prey on the damped spirits. Their reformation, as well as his retirement, actually makes them wretched, because it deprives them of all employment, by quenching the hopes and fears that set in motion their sluggish minds. If such by the force of habit, if such be the bondage of folly, how carefully ought we to guard the mind from storing up vicious associations! and equally careful should we be to cultivate the understanding, to save the poor white from the weak dependent state of even harmless ignorance. For it is the right use of reason alone, which makes us independent of everything, excepting the unclouded reason, whose service is perfect freedom. End of chapter 6